Good morning. It's good to be with you again this Sunday. Last Sunday I was with you, sort of. I watched online, and that's an operative verb, watched. Um, I had a friend who was visiting, was with you in person last week, and so I said uh, to her, I said, what'd you think? And she said, I loved it. I loved the worship, she said. And I said, well, what uh, made it so uh, powerful for you? And she said it was, and she, she said this, she said it was so inclusive. Um, and by that she meant, she's talking about our singing. She said it was, wasn't performance. She said it was inclusive. It was inviting us to participate. And when she told me that, she, I said, you've given me voice. Your expression gives me voice to articulate what's been rumbling around up there like bee bumblebees in my head. That's exactly what I've been thinking now for the last six months. I just didn't have words to, to say it. And I thought about that. I thought about Mark and watched him leave the stage and watched the singing. And I thought that's exactly how he leads. He doesn't perform, he leads, and the band leads. And I thought that's not only true of Mark, but it's also true of Gary and Evan and Lori and Dean and Nikki and all of the ministers on the ministry staff. They lead in a way that brings us along and includes us. And I thought that's a pretty a one-time visitor to make that observation. I thought, she got it. This is, the, this is indeed who this, who this congregation is. It's Memorial Day weekend where we, and this is not going to be an, a Memorial Day sermon, so to speak, but it is a weekend where, in a week where we pay attention to those who've gone before, those who have specifically served in our military, but also those that we have lost, that we loved. And I was mindful in thinking about Memorial Day weekend of a conversation that I had back in January or February, I met Miss Virginia on the way into services, and after services, she made her way up to me, and we chatted a bit, and she was of an age, I thought, where I could ask her this question. I said, so how old are you, Virginia? And she said, well, on June 4th, I will be 94. And we on the way home, I was doing the math. I thought, okay, June 4th. She was born in 1927. And then it dawned on me, my, she was born just a day or just a day before my mother was, I mean, they were the same year. My mother, who I lost about 30 years ago. Well, sure enough, the next Sunday, Miss Virginia made her way up and I'd kind of rehearsed this, but I said, you know, there were four great events, Virginia, 1927. Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs, Lindbergh flew over the Atlantic, my mother entered this world and you were born. <laughs> I think she, well, she chuckled at that. She thought that was a pretty good uh, little rendition there. And then I looked at her closely and I saw her face, there was her skin and her eyes and I looked at her and I remembered my grandmother, my grandmother whom I last, whose my memory of her and my last time I saw her was she was in her se late 70s, but she was in her 70s. She had the same kind of skin, same, and her eyes were like my grandmother's eyes. And I just said what I was thinking, and so I said, and Virginia, you look so much like my grandmother. 
Now, I was thinking that as a 25-year-old looking at my grandmother, but what she saw was a 67-year-old who's talking about his grandmother, who, if she were alive, would be 126. <laughs> and she had done the math, <laughs> and I didn't get the same chuckles I'd gotten before. And on the way home, it dawned on me, as I was reflecting on that conversation, how I really needed my wife at my side. And she would have stepped in and said, what David means. <laughs> and then she would have explained it, just like I explained it after I thought about it a couple of days. My wife lives by uh, the, the old line, be careful, be kind. No, be kind to everyone you meet. For everyone you meet is carrying a terrible burden. I would like to live, I would like to live into that. And I thought this Memorial Day weekend, how careful I want to be. I want to be careful in my conversations with everyone because it may be the last conversation that we have. And I want it to go well. I want it to be kind. Our sermon this morning is from a particular text that you may be familiar with. But I'm going to do something that's going to challenge you a couple of times. And the first challenge I will apologize for real quickly here. Lori, would you put this up on the screen? This that you're looking at is uh, a Rembrandt. It was discovered, it had been a private collection, it was discovered as a Rembrandt and found to be authentic about 46 years ago. And the Rembrandt that you're looking at is entitled The Baptism of the Eunuch, and it was painted nearly 400 years ago. I want to begin by saying that I'm a huge Rembrandt fan. I, you know, one of my favorite artists is Rembrandt. I love Rembrandt. But here's what I want to do, with apologies to all Rembrandt and art scholars and uh, fans in the room here, is to deconstruct <laughs> our Rembrandt painting. Forgive me, but I shall. As you look at the Rembrandt painting uh, that has in the close background a palm tree there, a carriage of some size, it appears, and horses. There are four men of color, it appears, to be in the background. In the center foreground is a white Caucasian man with a white beard who looks to be from Indiana or Pennsylvania. At least he is of Dutch descent. There are two men kneeling in the foreground. Actually, one is kneeling, who appears to be the Ethiopian eunuch, and there's one squatting behind him. And so, with due regard to the great Rembrandt and every artist that is listening at this moment, I would like to deconstruct as following. It appears to me, uh, the easy pickings here is the book that is opened and our reading before from Luke 4 carefully articulated that the scroll was taken down and the scroll was opened and the scroll was rolled back together and that's a book and not a scroll that the Ethiopian is reading in his carriage. But the big, uh, big deconstruction here is the one that every Church of Christ person worth his or her salt knows before I say it and that is, where's the water in this baptism? There is no water to be found. Uh, Philip, uh, the man from Indiana, appears to have his hand on the eunuch's head, but there is no water. 
It's strange because they went down into the water. The eunuch, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And then they came back up with the water, water everywhere. But the third deconstruction is this is Philip, who appears to be a white European or a man of European descent, at least, baptizing a man from Africa. He's identified as being from Ethiopia. And that's a strange move, because if you follow the chronology of the book of Acts, we will be in Acts chapter 8, where the Ethiopian eunuch is introduced. And those of us from who have our, who have our ancestry in Norway <laughs> or Sweden or Western Europe, we don't even get a look at in the book of Acts until chapter 10, when Cornelius comes in and then that's argued about the possibility of Arb coming in through chapter 15. So uh, that's enough for now. That's the deconstruction of Rembrandt and the rendition from, a rendition that's taken from Acts chapter 8. Now I would like to challenge you to, (laughs) this is impossible now, but to take that Rembrandt and move it out of your mind and to listen just to listen to the story as I read it from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And the way that I'd like for you to listen is not to help with the deconstruction or affirm the deconstruction of Rembrandt, but to listen instead as you would listen to any story being told. Listen, for example, with an eye on the characters. Listen, or listen, with paying attention to the scene that's being described. Or listen to the religious, theological, doctrinal matters that might surface in this story. Or listen to the action that takes place in this story. Character, scene, religious emphases, or action. As I tell this story, as it is revealed in Acts chapter 8. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Go up, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. That is a deserted road. So Philip got up and he went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He, the Ethiopian eunuch, was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning, and he was sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran up, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, well, how could I unless somebody guides me? And so he invited Philip up to sit with him in the chariot. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. He was, he was led as a sheep to slaughter. As the lamb before its shearer is silent, he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. So the eunuch said to Philip, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, 
Look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said to him, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched him away, and the eunuch saw Philip no more, but he went on his way rejoicing. And then Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. What did you hear? If you were paying attention to character, you probably noticed the elegant court official from Ethiopia riding in a chariot. Or if you were paying attention to the scene, you might have noticed the deserted road, the body of water, the baptism. If you were listening for religious emphases, the Jewish convert reading the scroll of Isaiah, maybe aloud, maybe muttering the words, not to mention the baptism, not to mention the utter significance of Jesus in this story. And if you were looking for action, you probably spotted Peter sprinting along the chariot, once again, not looking anything like Rembrandt's Peter, or Paul, or Philip, I mean. <laughs> not looking anything like Rembrandt's Philip, who had a little bit of a paunch on him. This guy's sprinting alongside the chariot. And then, of course, the climax of the story, if you're looking at action, two men going down to the water, and then in this deserted uh, road, and then the Spirit of the Lord snatching Philip away as the eunuch goes his way rejoicing. So what will, this, what will the sermon be about today? Well, I'm guessing that here at Fourth Avenue Church of Christ, this church, over the course of the last hundred and some odd ninety years, has heard this text on a good one hundred occasions. At least this congregation that was started by Alexander Campbell. The focus probably in these sermons has been on baptism. One, of course, Acts 8, is one of several conversion stories in the book of Acts that model how the people in the first century converted to Christ. I'm sure that in those, those preachings there was some addition to character, scene, theology, and action, but I'm guessing that it was primarily focused on baptism. I'm guessing also that if you were listening carefully, you noticed the first, practically the first word in this story, and that is the angel that speaks, that appears and speaks to Philip. An angel of the Lord is talking to him. Some translations have that angel appear again in verse 29 and again in verse 39, but surely the angel's there in verse 29 talking, and you might be thinking, well, I hope the sermon today is about angels because that's really captured our attention, captures our attention. It's so, in, angels are so interesting to us. Have you seen that painting? This one, not by Rembrandt, but it's a, one probably a hundred years ago. There's two little children walking across a rickety bridge. There's some sharp rocks and a dangerous river underneath. And there's an angel, you can tell it's an angel by his wings. There's an angel that's going to protect those children as they walk across the bridge. The angel is intervening and the angel is protected, protecting. Have you seen that picture? 
Perhaps you've seen the modern snapshots of angels intervening and angels protecting. There was the one, I don't know if you saw it or not, there was a family driving down the freeway, 70 miles an hour, bumper to bumper. Right at the moment, right before the semi was going to sideswipe the car with the family in it, an angel took the wheel and moved the steering just that far. I don't know if you saw that or not. You might have seen the photograph that was taken of the mugger in an alleyway. I think it was in New Orleans or maybe New York. There was a, a mugger who was crouching in the alleyway ready to grab whoever came next. And right before two little children walked into his sight, an angel kicked over a garbage can behind him. And the mugger turned around to see what it was, looked for a second, thought it might be the wind, and turned back and the children had safely crossed his line of vision. I don't know if you saw that or not. Or last night in the hospital, a little girl, very ill but improving, middle of the night. Mother there, keeping watch, had dozed off. But an angel nudges her awake. She awakens, and right at that moment, she questions the medical intern who's about to administer the wrong medication. Perhaps you've imagined such scenes in your own experience, angels protecting and guiding and intervening and leading us into something, something that we cannot see or hear. Maybe you're hoping for a sermon on angels. For those who've spent time reading the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, Luke's sequel, you'll recognize immediately that angels are no strangers to these stories. Angels bring messages to Zacharias and angels bring messages to Mary and shepherds. One angel even has a name, Gabriel. And near the end of Jesus' life, when Jesus is in Gethsemane, an angel comes to comfort him. And in the previous chapter in Acts, a story where Stephen is going to be martyred and there's angels all through his speech. They appear four times. But Luke opens that story with the strangest of all references. It says, he describes Stephen's face. He said, Stephen had the face of an angel, as if we know what an angel would look like. Angels are everywhere in Luke's writings. An angel of the Lord opens the gates of the prison that will let Peter out in Acts 5. It'll happen that angels will bring a message to Peter and then to Cornelius and bring the two of them together. An angel will bring a message to Paul near the end of the book saying, do not be afraid. Angels intervene, angels step in, angels start things. Angels are everywhere in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And that might a bit surprise us, it might excite us we who think that angels are cute and novel. But Luke is saying something more here, something very different. For us to notice the angels and pay, to pay such attention to them that may have only appeared one time in this story, the very beginning, but only once, is something the akin to being in Alaska in January and to say, wow, look at this, snow, have you ever seen snow? And they look at you and say, you must be a tourist. Or we're in Nashville, Franklin, Tennessee in July, and somebody says, my goodness, it's humid. You must be a tourist. <laughs> You've not been here before. Angels are only the background of our story. They're the background, the white background, perhaps, in the foreground as a man of color, the one we've come to refer to as 
the Ethiopian eunuch. This is a story not about angels, but about an Ethiopian eunuch. Angels set up a drama. It's a human drama, one that involves us in the character of the individuals who are involved, Philip and the eunuch. Our focus, because I think this is Luke's focus, is on this man from Ethiopia, whom I would say to you is a man of great ironies. He's described as a spiritual man in deep and fundamental ways. He's going on a pilgrimage from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. That's quite a ride on a chariot if you were to consult your globe. He's reading the prophets. He's eager to understand its meaning and he's responsive to a message about Jesus. This is a very pious man. And yet he is a man, and I'm going to use a word now that I typically do not use in my common conversation. In fact, I don't know that I've used it outside of references to a specific biblical text. But I use the word because this is the word that describes the man in the Bible. This eunuch is a man who has been castrated. According to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse first couple verses, no one whose testicles have been crushed or who have been cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. I'll not use the word again, but I use it to put his condition in the forefront of your mind. His condition keeps him outside of full participation in the temple. He couldn't fully convert to Judaism because the law prohibits it. He's a religious outcast. He's a pious outcast. And that is part of his irony. There's a deeper irony, too. The one that I would like to focus on even more. And that is that, is that this Ethiopian is a man of power. He is, Luke tells us, the court treasurer. We might call him the secretary of finance for the entire nation. He's, a, he's a, in a powerful position, and he has a powerful skill. He's able to read, which puts him into maybe the 1% of the entire world's population. And his chariot, maybe Rembrandt was getting this right. Think not of the Ben-Hur single-passenger racing chariot. Think not of the Volkswagen model, the Mini Cooper chariot. This chariot has room. There's a driver. And then there's the Ethiopian who is reading. And there's space for Philip to board. And then there's room for the scrolls. It's not a book. It's not a pocket testament. These are scrolls. This is a Royals Royce chariot. This is a Cadillac chariot fit for a man of his position. And yet, ironically, he's still looking for something. Why? Because something is missing in his life, and it's not his sexual condition. His sexual condition prevents him from being fully got one of God's people. Hard to imagine, isn't it? A man in this position, with this power and this prestige, still feeling like he's lacking something with all that he has. I think it's ironic because I listen to the way we talk. I'd like to have my first million by the time I'm 40. 
What I wouldn't give to drive a chariot like that. Imagine the perks of being Secretary of Finance. The power and money and prestige have never satisfied. They've never delivered the joy. Oh, we thought Bill Gates had it. We thought. And now he and his wife are going through a terrible divorce. There's something missing in the Ethiopian's life. And in our society, we elevate those who have the power, the money, and the prestige. There was a baseball player who played for the Detroit Tigers not too long ago. In the offseason, Marvin Nevis is his name, was traded to another club. And spring came, and he was on another club, and he came back to town to play the game. But in the offseason, a terrible thing had happened. A terrible tragedy had happened because Marvin Nevis and his wife had lost a child. And the free press from Detroit was interested in Nevis' reappearance at Comerica Park and in Detroit, and they interviewed him. And they asked him how he and his wife found the strength to deal with Brandon's death. And here's what this ball player said. He said, our, our faith is keeping us very strong. He said, the Heavenly Father is showing ways to deal. He said, a lot of people we know in and out of baseball have come forward and shown condolences, really caring and praying for us. And all of this has given us strength. Before the terrible tragedy, I knew that Marvin Nevis had the money and the power and the prestige. And when he walked into the ballpark, every child and a lot of adults were waving their baseball cards asking for an autograph. What I didn't know was that he was a man of faith, that he had had something that had filled the void in his life and everybody else's life, whether or not they have money and power and prestige. What I'm saying to you is to have those qualities that we say we want doesn't guarantee you what we really need. It was Augustine who articulated it centuries after the Ethiopian. He said that there is within every human being a God-shaped void that only God can fill. And he's right. Two ironies, the pious outcast and the man with power, prestige, and money who still has a God-shaped void. Amidst these two ironies, the eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, the Old Testament passage that speaks of the coming Messiah, the suffering servant, this passage of hope. There will come a day, Isaiah says, when the Messiah comes, and on that same scroll, Isaiah penned these words, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. To the eunuch who keeps my covenant and chooses what pleases me, I will give him my house, in my house, an everlasting name that will not be eliminated. What I'm saying is that this man is reading the very passage that is promising a day to come. You, hint, you get the hint of it in the text, but in the larger scroll, just a couple of what we call chapters later, there's the word specifically to this man. 
Let not the eunuch say, I am a dry tree. To the eunuch who keeps my covenant, who chooses what pleases me, I will give him an everlasting home, an everlasting name that will not be eliminated. When the Messiah comes, all will have hope. And no wonder he says, of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or of someone else? Imagine the hope in the tone of voice when he asked that question. He wanted more, and he got it. Philip preached Jesus to him. It's not hard for us to imagine what he told him. Starting with this passage, Luke says, he certainly wanted to hear what Jesus said. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Certainly he wanted to hear what Jesus said. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Certainly he wanted to hear that Jesus came victorious over death, that he raised Lazarus from the dead, that he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, that he raised the widow of Nain's son from the dead, he raised himself from the dead. And even though money, power, and prestige cannot prevent death in our lives, every last one of us, for the eunuch before Jesus, death meant the end of life. But there was hope through him. What was the eunuch looking for? Maybe he was looking for what you and I are looking for when our hearts warm with the thought of angels. We hear angels and we want protection and guidance and meaning and intervention. We don't really want the angels. We want what we associate with the angels. And what we associate with the angels is what only God Almighty can provide to fill the void that he's created within every one of us. We want something that will calm our anxieties as the drumbeats of culture wars grow louder the terrifying concern that we have for death, the fear that seems to be rampant amongst us. What was the eunuch looking for? He was looking for God to fill the emptiness in his life, for the God who would bring about the messianic hope, and he found it. Baptism? Perhaps Philip told him that at baptism he would die and rise to a newness of life, precisely as Jesus had. I don't know what he actually said, but what I do know is what verse 39 tells us, that he went his way rejoicing. He left full of joy because the emptiness was gone. A grandmother says that she wishes to live until her grandson graduates from college and the joy she will feel at that ceremony. A man and a woman wish to have children and they conceive, and nine months later in the hospital, a midwife says, it's a boy, and there's such joy. And the minister says, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. And the two, knowing the rightness of their choice, hope for a life of joy before them. But not all grandmothers make it to their grandchild's graduation. And not all who want children conceive, and not all marriages bring joy in a pandemic may strike. But the presence of God, filling the emptiness that only he can fill, brings a joy we can say is indescribable. We're so fascinated by angels 
They fill our movies and our books and our brooches, but they don't fill the emptiness in our life. Only God can do that. And we too are people of ironies. Some of us pious outcasts living in the wealthiest age, the wealthiest country, one of the wealthiest counties. And yet, we and our neighbors know the emptiness, the divide, the fear that is ever-present. We long for a world that's imagined in Luke, where God protects, and God guides, and God brings meaning, and God elevates us past ourselves to serve him. I close with two most interesting legends that are associated with this text. There's a curious detail about this passage that scholars have found. They they tell me that the oldest manuscript in the book of Acts is this one, Acts 8, not the whole thing, but Acts Acts 8, 26 to 32. That's the oldest manuscript that's around the, the book of Acts. What what the scholars have discovered is that evidently, because of the penmanship, it was written quickly. There were some corrections, there were some notations on the side, and that it had been folded. Scholars imagine that it was used either for a sermon or at a baptismal ceremony. It works perfectly, doesn't it? This text goes everywhere. It goes everywhere because this black man is you and me who longs for God, who's filled with ironies, perhaps, but has a God-shaped void that only, only Jesus can fill. And the second irony, the second, not irony, but the second curious legend that goes with this is that the story is told that this Ethiopian would return to his native country. And so real, so true was his conversion that when he got back to Ethiopia, he told others, and a church would start, a church that would start, that would go on for two centuries, would last and thrive even longer than Fourth Avenue has been in existence. The Ethiopian eunuch, not according to Rembrandt, but according to the gospel that's presented to us in Luke and in his sequel, the book of Acts, this is our story. May God give us the strength and the power to live into it in the days and the weeks ahead.